0: Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. John Milton, Poet and Patriot, Part 4 Then came those days, never to be recalled without a blush, the days of servitude without loyalty and sensuality without love, of dwarfish talents and gigantic vices, the paradise of cold hearts and narrow minds, the golden age of the coward, the bigot, and the slave. The king cringed to his rival that he might trample on his people, sank into a viceroy of France, and pocketed, with complacent infamy, her degrading insults and her more degrading gold. The caresses of harlots and the jests of buffoons regulated the policy of the state. The government had just ability enough to deceive and just religion enough to persecute. The principles of liberty were the scoff of every grinning courtier, and the anathema maranatha of every fawning dean in every high place worship was paid to charles and james belial and moloch and england propitiated those obscene and cruel idols with the blood of her best and bravest children crime succeeded to crime and disgrace to disgrace till the race accursed of god and man was a second time driven forth to wander on the face of the earth and to be a byword and a shaking of the head to the nations Most of the remarks which we have hitherto made on the public character of Milton apply to him only as one of a large body. We shall proceed to notice some of the peculiarities which distinguished him from his contemporaries, and for that purpose it is necessary to take a short survey of the parties into which the political world was at that time divided. We must premise that our observations are intended to apply only to those who adhered from a sincere preference to one side or the other side. In the days of public commotion every faction, like an oriental army, is attended by a crowd of camp followers, a useless and heartless rabble, who prowl round its line of march in the hope of picking up something under its protection, but desert it in the day of battle, and often join to exterminate it after defeat. England, at the time of which we are treating, abounded with fickle and selfish politicians who transferred their support to every government as it rose, who kissed the hand of the king in sixteen forty and spat in his face in sixteen forty nine, who shouted with equal glee when cromwell was inaugurated at westminster hall and when he was dug up to be hanged at tyburn who dined on calves heads or stuck up oak branches as circumstances altered without the slightest shame or repugnance these we leave out of the account we take our estimate of the parties from those who really deserve to be called partisans we would speak first of the puritans the most remarkable body of men perhaps which the world has ever produced The odious and ridiculous parts of their character lie on the surface. He that runs may read them, nor have there been wanting attentive and malicious observers to point them out. For many years after the Revolution, they were the theme of unmeasured invective and derision. They were exposed to the utmost licentiousness of the press and of the stage, at the time when the press and the stage were most licentious. They were not men of letters, they were as a body unpopular, they could not defend themselves, and the public would not take them under its protection. They were therefore abandoned, without reserve, to the tender mercies of the satirists and the dramatists. The ostentatious simplicity of their dress, their sour aspect, their nasal twang, their stiff posture, their long graces, their Hebrew names, the scriptural phrases which they introduced on every occasion, their contempt of human learning, their detestation of polite amusements, were indeed fair game for the laughers. But it is not from the laughers alone that the philosophy of history is to be learned and he who approaches this subject should carefully guard against the influence of that potent ridicule which has already misled so many excellent writers. Echo il fonte de riso, ed echo el rio, che mortali perigli in se contiene, or che tener a fren nostro desio, ed esser molto a noi conviene. Those who roused the people to resistance, who directed their measures through a long series of eventful years, who formed, out of the most unpromising materials, the finest army that Europe had ever seen, who trampled down king, church, and aristocracy, who in the short intervals of domestic sedition and rebellion made the name of England terrible to every nation on the face of the earth, were no vulgar fanatics. Most of their absurdities were mere external badges, like the signs of Freemasonry or the dresses of friars. We regret that these badges were not more attractive. We regret that a body to whose courage and talents mankind has owned inestimable obligations had not the lofty elegance which distinguished some of the adherents of Charles I, or the easy good breeding for which the court of Charles II was celebrated. But if we must make our choice, we shall, like Bassanio in the play, turn from the specious caskets which contain only the death's head and the fool's head, and fix on the plain leaden chest which conceals the treasure. The Puritans were men whose minds had derived a peculiar character from the daily contemplation of superior beings and eternal interests. Not content with acknowledging in general terms an overruling providence, they habitually ascribed every event to the will of a great being for whose power nothing was too vast, for whose inspection nothing was too minute. To know him, to serve him, to enjoy him, was with them the great end of existence. They rejected with contempt the ceremonious homage which other sects substituted for the pure worship of the soul instead of catching occasional glimpses of the deity through an obscuring veil they aspired to gaze full on his intolerable brightness and to commune with him face to face hence originated their contempt for terrestrial distinctions the difference between the greatest and the meanest of mankind seemed to vanish when compared with the boundless interval which separated the whole race from him on whom their own eyes were constantly fixed They recognized no title to superiority but his favor, and, confident of that favor, they despised all the accomplishments and all the dignities of the world. If they were unacquainted with the works of philosophers and poets, they were deeply read in the oracles of God. If their names were not found in the registers of heralds, they were recorded in the Book of Life. If their steps were not accompanied by a splendid train of menials, legions of ministering angels had charge over them. Their palaces were houses not made with hands, their diadems crowns of glory which should never fade away. On the rich and the eloquent, on nobles and priests, they looked down with contempt, for they esteemed themselves rich in a more precious treasure, and eloquent in a more sublime language, nobles by the right of an earlier creation, and priests by the imposition of a mightier hand. The very meanest of them was a being to whose fate a mysterious and terrible importance belonged on whose slightest action the spirits of light and darkness looked with anxious interest, who had been destined, before heaven and earth were created, to enjoy a felicity which should continue when heaven and earth should have passed away. Events which short-sighted politicians ascribed to earthly causes had been ordained on his account. For his sake, empires had risen and flourished and decayed. For his sake, the Almighty had proclaimed his will by the pen of the Evangelist and the harp of the Prophet. He had been wrested by no common deliverer from the grasp of no common foe. He had been ransomed by the sweat of no vulgar agony, by the blood of no earthly sacrifice. It was for him that the sun had been darkened, that the rocks had been rent, that the dead had risen, that all nature had shuddered at the sufferings of her expiring God. Thus the Puritan was made up of two different men, one all self-abasement, penitence, gratitude, and passion, the other proud, calm, inflexible, sagacious. He prostrated himself in the dust before his Maker, but he set his foot on the neck of his King. In his devotional retirement he prayed with convulsions and groans and tears. He was half-maddened by glorious or terrible illusions. He heard the lyres of angels or the tempting whispers of fiends. He caught a gleam of the beatific vision or awoke screaming from the dreams of everlasting fire. Like vain, he thought himself entrusted with the scepter of the millennial year. Like Fleetwood, he cried in the bitterness of his soul that God had hid his face from him. But when he took his seat in the council, or girt on his sword for war, these tempestuous workings of the soul had left no perceptible trace behind them. People who saw nothing of the godly but their uncouth visages, and heard nothing from them but their groans and their whining hymns, might laugh at them. But those had little reason to laugh who encountered them in the hall of debate or on the field of battle. These fanatics brought to civil and military affairs a coolness of judgment and an immutability of purpose which some writers thought inconsistent with their religious zeal, but which were in fact the necessary effects of it. The intensity of their feelings on one subject made them tranquil on every other. One overpowering sentiment had been subjected to itself pity and hatred, ambition and fear. Death had lost its terrors and pleasure its charms— They had their smiles and their tears their raptures and their sorrows but not for the things of this world enthusiasm had made them stoics had cleared their minds from every vulgar passion and prejudice and raised them above the influence of danger and of corruption it sometimes might lead them to pursue unwise ends but never to choose unwise means they went through the world like sir article's iron man talus with his flail crushing and trampling down oppressors mingling with human beings but having neither part nor lot in human infirmities insensible to fatigue to pleasure and to pain not to be pierced by any weapon not to be withstood by any barrier such we believe to have been the character of the puritans we perceive the absurdity of their manners we dislike the sullen gloom of their domestic habits we acknowledge that the tone of their minds was often injured by straining after things too high for mortal reach and we know that in spite of their hatred of popery they, too, often fell into the worst vices of that bad system—intolerance and extravagant austerity—that they had their Anchorites and their Crusades, their Dunstans and their De Montforts, their Dominics and their Escobars. Yet when all circumstances are taken into consideration, we do not hesitate to pronounce them a brave, a wise, an honest, and a useful body. The Puritans espoused the cause of civil liberty mainly because it was the cause of religion. There was another party, by no means numerous, but distinguished by learning and ability, which acted with them on very different principles. We speak of those whom Cromwell was accustomed to call the heathens, men who were, in the phraseology of that time, doubting Thomases or careless Gallios with regard to religious subjects, but passionate worshippers of freedom. Heated by the study of ancient literature, they set up their country as their idol, and proposed to themselves the heroes of Plutarch as their examples they seem to have borne some resemblance to the brissettines of the french revolution but it is not very easy to draw the line of distinction between them and their devout associates whose tone and manner they sometimes found it convenient to affect and sometimes it is probable imperceptibly adopted we now come to the royalists we shall attempt to speak of them as we have spoken of their antagonists with perfect candour we shall not charge upon a whole party the profligacies and baseness of the horseboys gamblers and bravos whom the hope of license and plunder attracted from the dens of white friars to the standard of charles and who disgraced their associates by excesses which under the stricter discipline of the parliamentary armies were never tolerated we will select a more favourable specimen Thinking as we do that the cause of the king was the cause of bigotry and tyranny, we yet cannot refrain from looking with complacency on the character of the honest old cavaliers. We feel a national pride in comparing them with the instruments which the despots of other countries are compelled to employ, with the mutes who throng their antechambers and the janizaries who mount their guard at the gates. Our royalist countrymen were not heartless, dangling courtiers bowing at every step and simpering at every word they were not mere machines for destruction dressed up in uniforms caned into skill intoxicated into valour defending without love destroying without hatred there was a freedom in their subserviency a nobleness in their very degradation the sentiment of individual independence was strong within them they were indeed misled but by no base or selfish motive compassion and romantic honour the prejudices of childhood and the venerable names of history threw over them a spell potent as that of Duessa, and, like the Red Cross knight, they thought that they were doing battle for an injured beauty, while they defended a false and loathsome sorceress. In truth, they scarcely entered at all into the merits of the political question. It was not for a treacherous king or an intolerant church that they fought, but for the old banner which had waved in so many battles over the heads of their fathers, and for the altars at which they had received the hands of their brides. Though nothing could be more erroneous than their political opinions, they possessed in a far greater degree than their adversaries those qualities which are the grace of private life. With many of the vices of the round table, they had also many of its virtues, courtesy, generosity, veracity, tenderness, and respect for women. They had far more both of profound and of polite learning than the Puritans. Their manners were more engaging, their tempers more amiable, their tastes more elegant, and their households more cheerful. Milton did not strictly belong to any of the classes which we have described. He was not a Puritan, he was not a free-thinker, he was not a royalist. In his character the noblest qualities of every party were combined in harmonious union. From the Parliament and from the Court, from the Conventicle and from the Gothic Cloister, from the gloomy and sepulchral circles of the Roundheads, and from the Christmas revel of the hospitable Cavalier, his nature selected and drew to itself whatever was great and good, while it rejected all the base and pernicious ingredients by which those finer elements were defiled like the puritans he lived as ever in his great taskmaster's eye like them he kept his mind continually fixed on the almighty judge and an eternal reward and hence he acquired their contempt of external circumstances their fortitude their tranquillity their inflexible resolution but not the coolest skeptic or the most profane scoffer was more perfectly free from the contagion of their frantic delusions their savage manners their ludicrous jargon their scorn of science and their aversion to pleasure hating tyranny with a perfect hatred he had nevertheless all the estimable and ornamental qualities which were almost entirely monopolized by the party of the tyrant there was none who had a stronger sense of the value of literature a finer relish for every elegant amusement or a more chivalrous delicacy of honour and love though his opinions were democratic his tastes and his associations were such as best harmonized with monarchy and aristocracy he was under the influence of all the feelings by which the gallant cavaliers were misled but of those feelings he was the master and not the slave like the hero of homer he enjoyed all the pleasures of fascination but he was not fascinated he listened to the song of the sirens yet he glided by without being seduced to their fatal shore he tasted the cup of circe but he bore about him a sure antidote against the effects of its bewitching sweetness the illusions which captivated his imagination never impaired his reasoning powers the statesman was proof against splendor the solemnity and the romance which enchanted the poet any person who will contrast the sentiments expressed in his treatises on prelacy with the exquisite lines on ecclesiastical architecture and music in the penseroso which was published about the same time will understand our meaning This is an inconsistency which, more than anything else, raises his character in our estimation because it shows how many private tastes and feelings he sacrificed in order to do what he considered his duty to mankind. It is the very struggle of the noble Othello. His heart relents, but his hand is firm. He does not in hate, but all in honor. He kisses the beautiful deceiver before he destroys her that from which the public character of Milton derives its great and peculiar splendor still remains to be mentioned. If he exerted himself to overthrow a forsworn king and a persecuting hierarchy, he exerted himself in conjunction with others. But the glory of the battle which he fought for the species of freedom which is the most valuable, and which was then the least understood, the freedom of the human mind, is all his own. Thousands and tens of thousands among his contemporaries raised their voices against ship-money and the star-chamber, but there were few indeed who discerned the more fearful evils of moral and intellectual slavery, and the benefits which would result from liberty of the press and the unfettered exercise of private judgment. These were the objects which Milton justly conceived to be the most important. He was desirous that the people should think for themselves as well as tax themselves, and should be emancipated from the dominion of prejudice as well as from that of Charles. He knew that those who with the best intentions overlooked these schemes of reform, and contented themselves with pulling down the king and imprisoning the malignants, acted like the heedless brothers in his own poem, who in their eagerness to disperse the train of the sorcerer, neglected the means of liberating the captive they thought only of conquering when they should have thought of disenchanting Oh ye mistook ye should have snatched his wand and bound him fast without the rod reversed and backward mutters of dissevering power we cannot free the lady that sits here bound in strong fetters fixed and motionless to reverse the rod to spell the charm backward to break the ties which bound a stupefied people to the seat of enchantment was the noble aim of milton To this all his public conduct was directed. For this he joined the Presbyterians. For this he forsook them. He fought their perilous battle, but he turned away with disdain from their insolent triumph. He saw that they, like those whom they had vanquished, were hostile to the liberty of thought. He therefore joined the independents, and called upon Cromwell to break the secular chain and to save free conscience from the paw of the Presbyterian wolf. With a view to the same great object, he attacked the licensing system, and that sublime treatise which every statesman should wear as a sign upon his hand, and as frontlets between his eyes. His attacks were, in general, directed less against particular abuses than against those deeply seated errors on which almost all abuses are founded, the servile worship of eminent men and the irrational dread of innovation. That he might shake the foundations of these debasing sentiments more effectually, he always selected for himself the boldest literary services. He never came up in the rear when the outworks had been carried and the breach entered. He pressed into the forlorn hope. At the beginning of the changes he wrote with incomparable energy and eloquence against the bishops. But when his opinion seemed likely to prevail, he passed on to other subjects, and abandoned prelacy to the crowd of writers who now hastened to insult a falling party. There is no more hazardous enterprise than that of bearing the torch of truth into those dark and infected recesses in which no light has ever shone. But it was the choice and the pleasure of Milton to penetrate the noisome vapors, and to brave the terrible explosion. Those who most disapprove of his opinions must respect the hardihood with which he maintained them. He, in general, left to others the credit of expounding and defending the popular parts of his religious and political creed. He took his own stand upon those which the great body of his countrymen reprobated as criminal or derided as paradoxical. He stood up for divorce and regicide. He attacked the prevailing systems of education. His radiant and beneficent career resembled that of the god of light and fertility nitor in adversum nec me qui caetera vincent impetus et rapido contrarius evehor obi. It is to be regretted that the prose writings of Milton should, in our time, be so little read. As compositions, they deserve the attention of every man who wishes to become acquainted with the full power of the English language. They abound with passages compared with which the finest declamations of Burke sink into significance. They are a perfect field of cloth of gold. The style is stiff with gorgeous embroidery. Not even in the earlier books of the Paradise Lost has the great poet ever risen higher than in those parts of his controversial works in which his feelings excited by conflict find a vent in bursts of devotional and lyrical rapture it is to borrow his own majestic language a sevenfold chorus of hallelujahs and harping symphonies we had intended to look more closely at these performances to analyze the peculiarities of the diction to dwell at some length on the sublime wisdom of the areopagitica and the nervous rhetoric of the iconoclast, and to point out some of those magnificent passages which occur in the treatise of Reformation and the animadversions on the remonstrant. But the length to which our remarks have already extended renders this impossible. We must conclude, and yet we can scarcely tear ourselves away from the subject. The days immediately following the publication of this relic of Milton appear to be peculiarly set apart and consecrated to his memory. And we shall be scarcely censured, if, on this his festival, we be found lingering near his shrine. How worthless soever may be the offering which we bring to it! While this book lies on our table, we seem to be contemporaries of the writer. We are transported a hundred and fifty years back. We can almost fancy that we are visiting him in his small lodging, that we see him sitting at the old organ beneath the faded green hangings, that we can catch the quick twinkle of his eyes, rolling in vain to find the day that we are reading in the lines of his noble countenance the proud and mournful history of his glory and his affliction we imagine to ourselves the breathless silence in which we should listen to his slightest word the passionate veneration with which we should kneel to kiss his hand and weep upon it the earnestness with which we should endeavour to console him if indeed such a spirit could need consolation for the neglect of an age unworthy of his talent and his virtues the eagerness with which we should contest with his daughters or with his quaker friend elwood the privilege of reading homer to him or of taking down the immortal accents which flowed from his lips these are perhaps foolish feelings yet we cannot be ashamed of them nor shall we be sorry if what we have written shall in any degree excite them in other minds We are not much in the habit of idolizing either the living or the dead, and we think that there is no more certain indication of a weak and ill-regulated intellect than the propensity which, for want of a better name, we will venture to Christian Boswellism. But there are few characters which have stood the closest scrutiny and the severest tests, which have been tried in the furnace and have proved pure which have been weighed in the balance and have not been found wanting, which have been declared sterling by the general consent of mankind, and which are visibly stamped with the image and the superscription of the Most High. These great men we trust that we know how to prize, and of these was Milton. The sight of his books, the sound of his name, are pleasant to us. His thoughts resemble those celestial fruits and flowers which the virgin martyr of Massinger sent down from the gardens of Paradise to the earth and which were distinguished from the productions of other soils not only by superior bloom and sweetness but by miraculous efficacy to invigorate and to heal they are powerful not only to delight but to elevate and purify nor do we envy the man who can study either the life or the writings of the great poet and patriot without aspiring to emulate not indeed the sublime works with which his genius has enriched our literature but the zeal with which he laboured for the public good the fortitude with which he endured every private calamity the lofty disdain with which he looked down on temptations and dangers the deadly hatred which he bore to bigots and tyrants and the faith which he so sternly kept with his country and with his fame End of section twenty.